Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Mehdi Hassan, and welcome to a very special edition of Deconstructed. Today, we're in front of a live audience at the National Union Building in Washington, D.C. Ahead of next month's midterms and the coming blue wave, I'm joined by a panel of lefty luminaries here to discuss the future of the American left, especially in Congress. Because if Democrats take the House and maybe even the Senate too, what happens next? Are they willing to take a left turn and really fight for what they believe in? Because Democrats, well, they tend to bring a knife to a gunfight, while Republicans, they bring a rocket launcher. So the question we're discussing today is, will a Democratic majority in Congress use its power not just to go after the tangerine tyrant in the White House, but to push for a bold progressive agenda? Are the Democrats ready to get radical? We have a stellar panel today. Uh, Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon has been ranked as the most progressive Democrat in the Senate. He's also the only Democratic senator to have endorsed Bernie Sanders for president in 2016. In, uh, in, uh, in June, he was turned away from a migrant detention facility on the Texas border. He filmed the encounter. It rightly went viral. Earlier this month, he took legal action to try and get the release of thousands of block documents related to Brett Kavanaugh's time in the Bush White House. Uh, Congressman Ro Khanna of California is a leading member of the House Progressive Caucus, a former Obama administration official and one of the only members in Congress not to take a cent of corporate PAC money. He was the co-sponsor. This is a proper lefty crowd. We're getting applause for all all the right things. He was the co-sponsor with Senator Bernie Sanders of the Stop Bezos Act, which earlier this month helped pressure Amazon boss Jeff Bezos into raising the company's minimum wage to $15 for all employees. Simone Sanders was national press secretary for Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign. No relation, I believe, between the two of them the youngest presidential campaign press secretary in US history. She's a former Harvard fellow, and nowadays can be seen representing the progressive left on cable news as a CNN political commentator. Another familiar face for progressives on CNN is Nina Turner, who was a national surrogate for Bernie Sanders in 2016, a former Ohio state senator, and a member of the Democratic National Committee's Unity Reform Commission. Nina is now president of Our Revolution, which is the organization set up to advance the Bernie Sanders economic political vision, and was named to Politico's playbook power list of 18 people to watch in politics in 2018. Ladies and gentlemen, your panel. So, I was originally going to kick off this discussion by asking if the Democrats win in November big and take control of House or maybe even Senate too, should they impeach Donald Trump? That was going to be my first question, but I think another impeachment question is worth asking given recent events. Should Democrats in Congress impeach uh, liar, liar, pants on fire, Brett Kavanaugh, the newest Supreme Court justice? Ro Khanna, let's start with you. You're a member of the House. 
where Democrats are much more likely to win a majority next month. Uh, do you think impeaching beer-loving Brett for perjury, among other things, should be high on the party's agenda? I think there has to be an investigation and a continued investigation. But let me talk about something uh, more urgent, which is that Democrats need to have a proposal to reform the Supreme Court. There is no reason to have lifetime tenure on the Supreme Court. In fact, you could have a situation where you serve 12 or 18 years and serve on the appeals court, and you don't even need an amendment for that, because under the Constitution, you serve just for good behavior, and you can move then to the appellate court. And we ought to expand the court, uh, not for simply political reasons, but you look at the number of cases the Supreme Court is hearing. They used to hear 184 during the Reagan years. They're hearing now about 84. We ought to have a, con a proposal to expand the court and require supermajority confirmation. Democrats need to be for modernizing the Supreme Court in the 21st century. Um, Jeff Merkley, it's less likely that Democrats are going to win the Senate. But even if you do, you're not going to have the two-thirds supermajority that you need to impeach a Supreme Court justice. So what do Democrats do in the face of the most right-wing, reactionary, and tainted Supreme Court in modern American history? Just roll over? What's the solution? Roe mentions reforming. Are you, are you on that train? Well, let's, let's start with the, uh, the proposition that the Justice Department could, obviously under a different leader than, than President Trump, proceed to pursue uh, felony charges against Brett Kavanaugh for perjury before the U.S. Senate. And, you th and would you be pushing for that from the Senate? I think, I think absolutely. Ab abs absolutely. And we really have to wrestle with the court because here is the situation. The court is no longer a panel of wise individuals weighing the, the provisions of the Constitution against each other. It is now the most powerful legislative body, and it is a legislative body controlled by and for the powerful rather than by and for the people. And if we don't take on the issues of gerrymandering, if we don't take on the issues of voter suppression, uh, dark money in campaigns, then we're going to lose forever more to the 1%, and the court's right at the heart of all of those key issues. Simone, court packing is now being talked about, partly by me, I wrote a piece about it. But, <laughs> but uh, President Trump mentioned it in one of his rallies. It's even, it's even reached the president's desk, probably in pictorial form. But what do you think? Do you think the Democrats, when they control all three branches of government, if they ever control all three branches of government, should expand the size of the Supreme Court to make up for the fact that one seat was stolen and one's occupied by a perjurer who's accused of sexual assault by three different women? Not to mention a partisan. I don't think Donald Trump knows what court packing is. So maybe someone will send him your article so he can get well-versed on the issue. Look, I do think that uh, Democrats should entertain and really give a hard look at proposals to expand the court. We do need reform. But first and foremost, we, we, we have to win in November. And then after we win in November, um, then comes oversight. And so even if we don't win the Senate, which I do think is still possible, um, Democrats in the House will have the opportunity to do what Republicans in the House are refusing to do is exercise their constitutional duty to over to give oversight and to check, put a check on this president. And I think that is what will be important. And so many things will come out of these oversight hearings. Um, there are things now we only know because of the media, because of what, what, what journalists are digging up. But what would happen if Congress was actually doing its job? Nina, there were a lot of activists who were at Capitol Hill uh, over the last couple of weeks. Um, 
how did you feel on Saturday when you saw Brett Kavanaugh getting that vote, being sworn in? A lot of people were demoralized. Others were just angry. What is the right reaction now? All of that. I mean, people should be angry as hell. Uh, we're mad and we're not going to take it anymore. But folks need to channel that anger into action. I mean, it's one thing to be mad. I mean, to have the leader of the Senate in Mitch McConnell refer... <laughs> There was, there was literally an uh, uh from the audience. Uh, <laughs> Poor old Mitch. You know, to have him refer to citizens who were and are exercising their First Amendment right as a mob. And that language is deliberately used, you know. And there's something wrong with that, that they want to suppress the voices of the people. So if he believes that the people who were campaigning against and making their voices heard against uh, Justice, oh Lord, uh, Judge Kavanaugh, just even say the word, just makes me kind of cringe, uh, uh, calling a mob mentality, then what was it when African Americans in this country were fighting for civil rights? I guess Dr. King had a mob mentality or Mahatma Gandhi fighting for the rights of his people had a mob mentality. I will go with the mob mentality any day of the week as long as that mentality is about justice. Mm. And they were not a mob in the sense that no violence was being perpetrated, but the anger is palpable and it is real. And I'm going to tell you something. We have a lot in this country to be mad as hell about. I am from the Angry Black Woman Club. Same. You with me, Simone? Same. And we taking applications. All y'all can be angry black women, too. And the I'm, from the, I'm from the angry Muslim club, but don't join that don't club. Don't join that club. Because you, you can't fly. They won't let you fly they if you join that club. They won't let you fly club. if you join that club. Just saying. So, no, there's a lot to be angry about, but we have to channel that anger into action. Okay, and just on the action, I just want to stick with you, because you run our revolution. You're channeling people into activism. You know, you hear issues like Medicare for all. Yes. People turn out for Medicare for all. People turn out for minimum wage. Uh, do, are people going to turn out for procedure, what seems like procedural stuff, but it's so important, as Rose said at the start, unless you change some of this, I worry that people won't take to the streets for term limits of Supreme Court justice, even though without that, you won't be able to get Medicare for all. But that's not how we get them to the party. We got to speak their language. Medicare for all will get them there. Yeah. And if we leave the breadcrumbs or draw the distinction between why it is important to come out to vote so that we can get to those positions, okay. then they will come. But no, they're not coming out just to... So I want to talk about those positions before we get to those positions. Um, Jeff Merkley, you heard me say at the start that Democrats bring a knife to a gunfight, Republicans bring a rocket launcher. Do you think that's a fair criticism of your party, that the Republicans are willing to do whatever it takes to uh, get and execute power while the Democrats are busy trying to be bipartisan and friendly and conciliatory and compromising and looking reasonable? And as a result, you guys get beaten up time and again. No, I, I, don't, think that's, I don't think it's a fair point. Uh, and I would frame it differently. What I'd frame it as, we have seen in the course of the last several decades a complete concentration of wealth at the top. And those in the 1% are willing to spend massive sums to control this country. In 2014, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars to take control of the Senate. They've controlled it ever since. And now we're at that point where we're just, where the, the battle between the 1% and we the people, we are just hanging on by our fingernails. And I mentioned some of the tools that the one percenters are bringing to bear. That is gerrymandering, dark, dark money, and uh, voter suppression. But what, in, a, in, a, in addition, they're willing to do uh, is uh, exercise at any given moment 
uh, what they want to get the job done on the on the court. And we we saw with them uh, removing the supermajority for the Supreme Supreme Court, and then pushing this man through, who was flawed in every possible every but, possible way. But Jeff, see, the problem I have with that argument is I hear Democrats, some Democrats now, going on TV saying. It's our fault. We made Mitch McConnell take away the filibuster because we took away for lower court judges as if he wasn't going to do it anyways. I hear Chuck Schumer saying, we should bring back the filibuster if we're in charge for Supreme Court justice, which seems like unilateral disarmament on the part of the uh, Democrats. Yeah, yeah, well that... Uh, do you support you, that? Do you support I, Chuck do, Schumer on yeah, that? Yeah, I do not support Chuck Schumer on that. <laughs> okay, good to hear. Listen... Hey, I'll, I'll make you a deal, though. If the, the two illegitimate justices step down... Yeah. Then let's bring back the supermajority. That okay. would be a fair deal. Just I'd out of interest, who are the two illegitimate justices? Well, that would be Neil Gorsuch yeah. in, a, in a stolen seat. Yeah. And now the, the name that I, ha I share with Nina, the difficulty of saying Kavanaugh, yeah. uh, who, who should never have been confirmed. But if we're going to get rid of people, dodgy people on the court who've committed sexual misconduct, there's also Clarence Thomas we could also go after. Anyways, um, Simone, do you think Democrats, I see you on TV fighting with people. I say that in a good way. You should fight with people. And I think, is there enough of that energy in the halls of Congress amongst members of Congress who are Democrats? I think some. Some members of Congress have been um, willing to go out there and, and, and fight, willing to go out there and step out there um, on the issues that matter and really stand up. Some people have not, but that's where the base comes in. And that's why it's so important that so many people took to the streets, that they stormed the halls of Congress, that people are still raising hell and raising their voices because it's that energy from the grassroots on the left that will hold our elected officials accountable. Um, and so where our elected officials sometimes fall short, I think that's where it's the grassroots job is to hold them accountable and tell them what it is that we want. Now, the Republican base does that extremely well. Yeah. They do that extremely well. Um, and I think that's if there's anything we can learn from our Republican friends, that's one of them. But I, I also want to be clear that while the, you know, the, president, the current president of the United States and Mitch McConnell and others are on television, on Twitter and everywhere else saying that it's the Democrats that just for their brazen hunger of power are willing to do anything, these mobs, who they are talking about are themselves. It is the Republican Party in this country who has bucked every single norm, every single value, every single process so, in pursuit of brazen power. So when you're up against people like that, can you win by sticking to the rules that they're tearing up in front of well, you? Well, I do not think we should stick to the old rules. You know, sometimes I feel as though the house is on fire and Democrats are still looking for the keys to open the front door. And I think we just need to bust the window open and get in there and save the people. And I will say, with um, the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, Democrats broke the window. They broke the window, and I think we're willing to break the window again. But we cannot become that which we loathe. I do not want the Democratic Party to turn into this brazen hunger for power at any cost because what makes us that much different than them? Okay. Um, Ro Khanna, I mentioned, I mentioned Chuck Schumer to Jeff. That's Jeff's boss in the Senate, right? He's not the boss. Jeff, Jeff's an independent He's senator. He's the first among kind equals. Of, He's not kind the of boss. boss. Kind of boss. Uh, Chuck's not here to defend himself. Let me ask about your boss in the House. Nancy Pelosi said recently that... If you retake the House, she's going to bring back uh, pay-go. She's going to bring back pay-go 
And uh, if those of you don't know what Paygo is, it means basically if you want to raise spending, you want to spend some money on something, you have to match it by a spending cut somewhere else or a tax increase. It basically binds the hands, I would argue, of Democrats because you're trying to balance a budget when we know what the Republicans do. They put $2 trillion on a tax cut, which is completely unfunded. So do you support Nancy Pelosi when she says we should bring back Paygo? Nancy Pelosi is wrong about that, both substantively and politically. The Republicans have been running the same script since 1980. Cut taxes, grow the defense, have 5% economic growth. And then we come in and we argue that we're going to balance the, the budget. Why, not? Why can't we argue that Medicare for all, debt-free college, infrastructure investment is going to have 5% economic growth? It's actually true. It's going to increase consumer spending. <laughs> and, and it's better politics. But if I could just say very briefly, because I agree... I agree with so much with Simone's point that we should not be like the Republicans. Look, the Republicans aren't doing anything new. Might makes right goes back to the founding of politics. That was Thrasymachus' argument in Plato's Republic. And then we had thinkers, people like Socrates and people inspired like Gandhi and King and Vaclav Havel who said, no, politics isn't about might makes right. Politics is about inspiring people, about seeking a better world. That's how Democrats win. It's not by copying the age-old strategy of might makes right, okay. which is completely unoriginal. Bet you didn't think you'd be hearing about Plato and Aristotle when you came here tonight, uh, raising the level of conversation there, Uh Nina, so on that note, where do... I'm interested in this argument. You often hear this phrase, insider-outsider strategy. Where does that fit in right now with where the Democrats are? They, let's say they win the House, they improve in the Senate, they're now wielding some power... Where does, where's, where's the balance now between the, quote, insiders and outsiders? Is it, is it in the right place where it should be? Not necessarily. I, to, to me, and, and just going back to the Democrats, I mean, they did fight like hell. You know, I do agree with Sister Simone on that. But not to be able to hold, you know, the, the line in terms of Senator Joe Manchin. Now, I'm just going to say this to the audience. I served in the legislature in Ohio, and I was a whip. I was the minority whip. And there came a time in the caucus, as both of my colleagues up here knows, that you're faced with the caucus and you have a decision to make. Sometimes, you, most of the time, you're voting your district just straight up and you have to say, I, I can't go along with this because it hurts my district. And other times, your leader comes to you and says, look, you got to sacrifice on this one. You got, we got to draw a line. And it would have been so historic for every single Democrat. We don't need... Senator Joe Manchin is a Republican, so he needs to go ahead and run like one. Point blank. And the fact that the leader, the Democratic leader in the Senate could not hold the caucus 100% together to get Senator Joe Manchin to vote the right way, to me, says something about leadership. I mean, hell, if you can't get uh, Senator Joe Manchin to do the right thing, how in the heck they gonna do anything else yeah. outside? No, it's a good point. So in terms of the inside-outside, the Democrats really have to start to embrace, and the Democrats up here do, really have to start to embrace what activists and the people in the streets bring to the table. You know, this is not, we can't understand the state of the union until we understand the state of the streets. And the state of the streets is crying out for authentic leadership and no more of this half-measure, play-games, policies. That's what they want. They want people who are going to stand up. Okay. And... Uh I mean, the Joe Manchin point is a very important point. I'm glad you raised Joe Manchin. I mean, there's yeah. this argument, isn't there, that, oh, well, he's running in a red state, so, you know. Forget that. 
So is also, Joe Donnelly. So right. is Heidi Heitkamp. So is Claire McCaskill. But also, but also say that. all of those folks voted <laughs> exactly. Down. And also, <laughs> right. What is the point of electing a Democrat in a red state if they're going to vote like a Republican? You might as well That's just right. vote for the Republican. I just Republican. don't understand the logic. Jeff, Absolutely. have you had a chat with Joe since Saturday? <laughs> Exchanged texts. I think uh, we need to, f to look at what an extraordinary thing it was that uh, a group of individuals made up their mind about what was right and ignored really the, the politics of their, their home state. And, uh, you know, look at Heidi, look at Claire, Bill Nelson down in, yeah. down in Florida. I mean, those, those folks uh, really took an extraordinary movement of the heart. I must say, uh, I think the premise that the majority leader controls everything, uh, we're not a marching army. We don't march to the tune of the majority leader. But what we do do is try to fight for those core values. And seeing those folks stand up thinking that it's, this, is going to, this may hurt me at home, but you know what? This man lied to the Senate. This man yeah. has a credible history and of sexual assault. And they took, they took the, the right stand. I will say in 2017, you saw two major issues. You saw the bank heist, the tax bill in which they, as you mentioned, robbed $2 trillion out of the national treasury and gave it to the richest Americans and most yeah. powerful corporations. 100% of the, the Democrats were there. And then they tried to wipe out health care for 22 to 30 million people and 100% of the Democrats were there. And so and, it may and, not and, be a perfect record, but I, I can no. tell you those folks were, were voting the, the, the fight for working okay. people and, and for those who are not in the 1%, if you will. And do you think the people in this crowd have every right to be really, really angry at Joe Manchin? I think, I think they have really, really angry with a whole host of Republicans, including uh, some uh, who um, clearly knew they were doing the wrong thing on, oh, on this. <clears throat> Jeff Lake. Um, but not Joe Manchin. Don't, don't, okay, put, don't put this... Fine, fine. <laughs> I can okay. say yes. Yes. I'll say yes. Yes. Um, let's talk about... Let's talk about what happens after November. Politics is about choices. It's about priorities. So what should be the top progressive priority for a House Democratic majority come January? Medicare for all, comprehensive immigration reform, debt-free college, $15 minimum wage. Somebody jump in. What's First top of the list? Yes, Puerto yes. Rico. Uh, both of you spoke. Go, go. Jeff, then Simone. Well, oh, Simone, then I then. will say I think it needs to be Puerto Rico. I think what we saw from the Trump administration is a grotesque a grotesque disregard for our brothers and sisters in Puerto Rico. Puerto Ricans who are Americans, and I don't even believe I have to say that, but there, the ball was dropped in Puerto Rico, and we need, like, we need the House to exercise oversight to find out what happened, where the ball was dropped, and how we can support Puerto Rico in the ways that we have not supported them. And that, that's certainly true. I went down there eight months after, after the, the storm, and what I saw were thousands of blue tarps over buildings, hospitals with, without repair, electricity still turned off in community after community. Uh, we have a lot of things to do in January, but let me tell you, I came back from that trip feeling that all of the Americans who live outside of the states need representation, voting representation in the House of Representatives and the U.S. Senate. Hey. You're in Washington, D.C. It's a very receptive crowd uh, to that <laughs> argument. DC, yes. um, on the policy front, I think we can all agree that Trump uh, betrayed the people of Puerto Rico. Um, on the and policy the Virgin front, Islands, I'm going to add. And on the policy front, we hear lots of these kind of buzzword policies. Some of them are very, very important policies. What sh is there one that should be top of the list in your view, Rokana? I think it has to be Medicare for all for three reasons. One, 
we need to make sure that our presidential candidates don't obfuscate that. And we need to be clear that the Democratic Party stands for Medicare for all and force a vote when we get back. Half, Half the candidates who are our nominees are running on Medicare for all. It's one of the biggest moral issues out there when you look at people who are being denied access for care. I had someone in my district who died of a sinus infection because they didn't get care fast enough. And it's one of the biggest economic issues when we know that the current system costs $49 trillion over the next 10 years, 17% health care costs. Medicare for all would cost $32 trillion. It would free entrepreneurs, free innovation, allow us to compete with China. This party needs to have clear policies, and we ought to be very clear that we're a party that stands for Medicare for all. We ought to vote on Senator Sanders' bill in the House. And if there's a compromise version, we can vote on that. But let's know where exactly people stand. Amen. Amen. So as long as we're, we're jumping in on most important issues, and, and we have the ability in Congress to simultaneously pursue several key issues, which I think is so important because the clock runs out. The Republican strategy is the clock runs out. But let me just say, if we have control of both chambers and we don't address climate chaos, which is destroying our planet, then we are morally bankrupt. Well, that's a... That is a fantastic segue into my next question, which was going to be, and I'll ask it to you since you raised it, the IPCC report out this week, which talks about time running out, talks about making changes to an economy, quote, without documented historic precedent. Do you agree with my Intercept colleague, Naomi Klein, and others who have argued that the real barrier to stopping climate change, stopping climate chaos, uh, is capitalism itself? (sighs) Well... I'll say that the, the, the enormous barrier is the influence of the fossil fuel industry, which is absolutely determined to you know, squeeze every penny out of those reserves. But this we see in, in country after country. Oh, and Trudeau comes in. Trudeau comes into office, and we think, oh, we have a climate champion in Canada. Well, what does he do? The government pays $5 billion to buy the Trans Mountain Pipeline so they can expand it and triple the the capacity. We see down in Australia that the conservative Prime Minister Turnbull just got thrown out by his own party because he was a little bit concerned about climate while the outback was on fire and the coral reefs are dying. And we have to have action at every every single level. But what it means is we have to call out that power that's hidden. So in 2014, when the, uh, the Koch brothers came after senator after senator after senator, including me in Oregon, I'm the only one who put up an ad attacking the Koch brothers. And because they use these, these front groups like uh, Americans for Prosperity and uh, Generation Opportunity and so forth, we have to rip that facade away, expose who they are, the damage that they're doing to the, our generation, the next generation, the many generations after, and really defeat them straight on. By the way, if you haven't seen, there's a clip on YouTube, which I urge you to watch, uh, of Senator Merkley uh, questioning a guy who was up for a job at the EPA, I think it was, who says he's not sure about the science on climate change. He's heard about it. And uh, Jeff kind of loses it at him. It's worth a, it's worth a watch. Um, Ro Connor, you said in a tweet last year that climate change isn't just a moral question, it's a collective issue for our nation. We need bipartisan efforts to find real solutions now. How do you get bipartisan efforts when the other side doesn't agree with the science and you have a president who says it's a Chinese hoax? Well, here's, I've, I've spent a lot of time since the report came out thinking, why do the Republicans or Trump not care? And I believe it's an issue of uh, justice. They are, if Trump really thought that Barron Trump was going to suffer 
if the Celsius, uh, if it goes, temperature goes up 1.5 degrees, he'd be doing something. Would he? But, no, he, you know, you know what he thinks? Not sure. He thinks poor people in other parts of the country, the world, are going to suffer. He thinks the impact of this isn't going to affect the very, very rich. And so this is an issue. Why is there indifference? The indifference is because people think that the wealthy are going to be able to skate by and those who are the marginalized are going to be the victims. And we have to make this issue uh, about justice. I mean, this is because let's be very That's clear. That's not going to get Republicans on board. When well, was I the last time you said justice and the Republicans came running? Well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not convinced on the, you know, on the Republicans. You can get some moderate Republicans, perhaps. I mean, there is uh, the climate change caucus in uh, the House where you have people join. And I often joke that the criteria for joining is not. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Any policy, it's just acknowledging that climate change is a man-made uh, <laughs> like issue. A bar, very low <laughs> so, bar so, for membership. But, you know, I, I, hopefully you get a few, at least, Republicans, but certainly the leadership or, or the president is not going to go around along Nina. with it. Do you want to come in? What's, oh, you want me to come in? I, do, I, I want you to come in and tell us what we do, faced with climate chaos and a Republican party that's anti-science and a public that feels a little bit apathetic when it comes to this issue. We talk about getting people on the streets. Yeah, well, we get those same people to run so we can get the current Republicans out and get some folks in who do believe in client science. I mean, you know, back to what Ro was saying, it really is when it when the rubber meets the road, how these issues impact you. And to the extent, I mean, I, I've traveled to about 35 states or so between last year and this year. And Mother Earth is really crying out for us to do the right thing by her. And in order to get the elected officials who currently sit there to really understand that and believe in that, it's going to take the constituents in West Virginia. It's going to take the constituents in these red states to make it known to their elected officials that this is something that every, you know what, only all that we love is on the line. That's all. You know, that as Americans and in and, and the world, because we're world citizens, that clean air, clean water, clean food, is something that really is a human right. So only all that we love is on the line. And so we have to make sure that we marry that particular issue to the needs of the people who actually go out to vote. And voters must demand it. And if the elected officials don't do it, whether they're Republican or Democrat, we got to vote them the hell out of there and get some other folks who do believe that climate change is real and that Mother Earth is crying out to us to do something. 
Jeff, very briefly. I, I think you, you, you have to talk about things that people understand on the ground. And in rural Oregon and rural America, the impact on agriculture, the impact on fishing, the impact on forests. And uh, for example, I was talking to a conservative audience, and somebody had attacked me saying, you talk about climate, why not talk about jobs? And of course, I got to the jobs part. But I said, you know, how many people here fish? And everybody raised their hands. Half because they fish, and the other half because they don't want to admit they don't fish. <laughs> But when I, as soon as I turned, well, you know the streams without the snowpack are smaller and warmer, and that's bad for your trout fishing. They start nodding their heads. You know about the yeah. pine beetles killing our forests and the red zone. So oh, yeah, we to, know about that. You, speaking, of, speaking the language that yeah, they understand yes. and the priorities that matter to them. Uh, Simone, did you want to come in briefly? I mean, I just think it's also a, it's a, it's a health issue. This is a, this is a justice issue. This is a social justice issue. If you go into a first grade classroom in any urban community across America and you ask a student, in the, a young student in that classroom to raise their hand if they know anyone that has asthma, almost every single person's hand is going to go up. That is a direct result of climate change. Truck depots uh, in urban communities, increased pollution, these all contribute to health issues in kids, increased lead amounts in the soil. And so we have to speak very specifically, like the senator said, to okay. um, the issues that folks are dealing with every single day. And just, I do want to, I want to move on to some other policies, but before I do, one of the other lines that has become very popular these days amongst progressives is abolish ICE. Um, Ro Khanna, abolish ICE? I think reform ICE, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I believe that when you'd say abolish ICE, the message that you're sending to people, rightfully or wrongfully, is that you want open borders. And I don't think that that's politically smart. I think the message we need to be sending to people is we believe in protecting our borders, but we don't believe in criminalizing mothers with young kids. We ought to be focused on drug trafficking, terrorism, and have an agency separate that's going after that, uh, and uh, have an agency uh, that is also geared towards enforcement. But I, I think a reform ICE is a better message politically. Is, any, is there anyone, anyone on the panel who disagrees with Roe who thinks we need to go abolish ICE? If we get rid of, rid of President Trump, then that problem is solved. Okay. The ICE problem is solved. <laughs> is it solved? No. Yeah, in a, in, in a way that this is really about the leadership and them doing what this president wants them to do. They're doing horrible who's, things who's, under this president. They were doing some pretty bad things under Obama. Yeah, but not to the not to the agree not, not, not to the to extent the, not agree. to the same extent. So you think reform? So it's, ice. it's about leadership too. Okay. It's about because ice can be replaced with something else. Okay, I, I agree with this. I agree with Nina. Ice can be replaced with something else. I think we do need to reform ice, but we also need to think about a comprehensive family first immigration policy yes. that puts the families uh, in this country and folks coming to this country first. That's not currently what our what what our immigration policy does. And secondly, I think we just need to do some education because uh, we don't like. We don't have open borders. If, you, if you've ever left the country and tried to get back in, even as a United States citizen, it's, it's damn tough. And ICE doesn't control the borders. There's a separate agency that does that. But because people don't know, and, and you know, our Republican friends are just a little bit better at hammering that, that the lies through than we are hammering down the truth, we get caught up in this conversation. The CNN poll that just came out uh, this morning, it said that actually the public trusts Democrats more on immigration than Republicans. 
That I was surprised about. And I think one of the reasons is what they see out of the very dark heart of this administration is this policy of ripping children out of their parents' arms. Families fleeing persecution and simply seeking a fair asylum opportunity uh, here in, a, in America. And I think when we embrace that fundamental value of treating families fleeing persecution honestly, not abusing children, not doing tent cities in the desert for children, not doing internment camps, which administration is trying to do, we win this argument. Okay. Yes. And it didn't start with Trump, yes. but he is That's definitely right. magnified. That's it. Okay, let me, let's, I just want to talk about foreign policy, which sometimes doesn't get a look in, uh, in these debates. There's been talk recently of what a left-wing foreign policy might look like. Ro Khanna, you are someone who has led the charge against US support for the Saudi war in Yemen. And given the suggestion this week that the Saudis may have murdered a Saudi journalist and a US resident on foreign soil, should reevaluating America's relationship with Saudi Arabia be at the center of a more ethical, less corrupt, more progressive foreign policy? Absolutely. I mean, the, there's no question that the coalition has engaged in a barbaric war in Yemen, killing uh, mothers, killing children. Uh, and it was a farce when Pompeo came to Congress and certified that there weren't, wasn't any humanitarian crisis. It would have been more honest if he had said, there is a humanitarian crisis and we want a national security waiver because we just don't care and are engaged in realpolitik. But he insulted the intelligence of Congress by being dishonest. A progressive foreign policy is actually consistent with the American founding ideals. John Quincy Adams and George Washington warned us not to get entangled in overseas interventionism. We need to re-examine the neocon, neoliberal interventions in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya that have gotten us in this mess, have restraint in our foreign policy when it comes to military interventionism, and lead with the things that Americans are loved for, our movies, our technology, our ability to solve world problems. That's what we ought to be projecting to the world, not our military uh, tanks. And you listed a bunch of conflicts. I do want to come back to um, Saudi Arabia with Jeff Motley before I do. You mentioned a few areas in the world. A lot of progressives, a lot of members of the Democratic base, if you look at the polling, also want a change in US foreign policy on Israel-Palestine. Do you support that? I do. I do. I think, uh, you know, I sponsored uh, with Betty McCollum a a bill for human rights for Palestinian kids. I didn't think it was very controversial. Human rights are human rights. It doesn't matter whether you're Palestinian, whether you're Yemenese. We need to stand up consistently for human rights. I believe in the U.S.-Israel relationship, but that relationship is at its best when we stand up for human rights. Um, Jeff Merkley, I interviewed Chris Murphy recently on this show, and he was your colleague in the Senate, who's, who was making this very good point that people don't realize when you vote in midterms, you're not just voting for Medicare for all, you could actually be voting to stop a war in Yemen that is killing kids every day, every minute as we sit here talking. Do you think that's fair? Have you seen a change amongst your colleagues in the Senate that you could actually see a vote on Capitol Hill actually going against the Saudis for the first time? Oh, I, I, absolutely. There's been a big shift. Uh, and for a while, the administration was saying, well, we're going to give precision munitions so they quit hitting civilian targets. We provided precision munitions and what happened? They used them to hit civilians and we've seen it strike after strike after strike. We're refueling the, their warplanes. We're completely complicit in this. Uh, we're not intervening to make sure that the um, uh, port in Haidata is, uh, remains free and open. There's, there's millions of people at risk of starvation there. If you've seen the pictures of the starving children in that country, it's, it's horrific. And so this is one 
one piece of a completely misguided strategy of partnering with the Saudis on this. We should be not only not partnering with them, we should be working intensely uh, to inter intervene and stop that, the, stop that conflict. That is good to hear. Um, just one quick question for you. I know we're short of time on this section, but one question I do want to ask you. Last month, the Senate voted 93 to 7 to increase an already bloated $600 billion Pentagon budget by 17 billion extra dollars in 2019. Every single Democratic senator voted in favor of that. Uh, Bernie Sanders and six Republicans voted against it. Um, for the audience here and the audience at home, what was behind your thinking when you voted in favor of that yeah, Pentagon uh, budget what, increase? What happened with this, I voted against the one that's by itself, but it was combined with a health and human services budget that had tremendously important provisions for the quality of life for working Americans and poor Americans. They combined those deliberately so that, so that it made it very, very difficult. Uh, but uh, you know what? We should be thinking about a massive decrease on the, the Pentagon side uh, and a massive clawback of the tax bill so we can invest in health care and we can invest in education and so we can invest in, in infrastructure. And we're way off track and we're slipping behind the rest of the world. Um, Simone, you were press secretary to Bernie Sanders in, when he was running in the primaries at the... He was criticized a great deal at the time for not having a clear foreign policy vision when he was asked about Iraq, he was asked about other issues. He's since uh, worked very hard to turn that around. He gave a, a very important speech earlier this week about authoritarianism. Um, do you think the left lacks a foreign policy? It's something that they haven't done enough intellectual heavy lifting on? I think, so one, I also reject the notion that the senator lacked a very clear foreign policy yes. during the campaign. I think we, we talked about ISIS, we talked about Iraq. He did a whole press he did a whole gaggle for 15 minutes one time on ISIS. The next day we do a press conference. They're like, you don't want to talk about ISIS. We just talked to y'all about ISIS. But I say that to say, I think that um, like America has to be honest about our foreign policy interests and what our foreign policy is. And if we want to be honest, the current administrations and many administrations before it, if we just want to be frank, our, our foreign policy is directly tied to our geopolitical interests, not our values, not human rights. It's our geopolitical interests. And so we just need to be honest about that. That's why, we, that's why many people are not calling out the Saudis, because it's against our geopolitical interests in the region. That's why we're backing the Israelis, because it's... it's it, it helps our geopolitical interests in the region. And so I think a progressive foreign policy is one that um, acknowledges our geopolitical interests in the region and around the world, but also stands firm to our core values that we say that we care about. Um, and I think Democrats are doing a better job of defining that. And I think in the coming months, you'll see a lot of people step up so. uh, to give their, their little foreign policy speeches all across uh, uh, Nina, Washington, D.C. And Nina, I want to ask you the same thing about climate change. It's the same issue sometimes I find where, even in the UK where I used to live and work, the same issue where people will get really worked up about healthcare, rightly so, and jobs, but you try and talk about Saudi Arabia or Yemen or Israel. It's much harder, even on the left, where people are very idealistic about these things, to get people as worked up about foreign policy issues where you know, people are dying as a result of American government decisions. No, it is, and we just have to do a better job of seeing ourselves as citizens of the world. And I think the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King drew this out very nicely when he said what affects one directly affects us all indirectly. So we cannot afford not to care what's happening to our sisters and brothers around the world. But Simone's point is just is right. Just the pure politics of this is really about is about the geopolitical interests that we have in this country. And those on the right and the left have failed to look beyond that. I mean we can't right. say that we're for justice and freedom, but say that our allies can get away 
with murdering and pillaging yeah. all over the world. And that is exactly what is happening. That if you are my friend, I will look the other way yeah. and you can do bad things. So we are citizens of the world and what happens to one directly happens to us all indirectly. And we should help our citizens to understand, put ourselves in the shoes of our sisters and brothers in Yemen. Put ourselves in the shoes of other uh, communities across this world who are suffering because of America's intervention on the wrong side and how we destabilize yeah. almost everywhere that we go, we make it worse than when we came in. That's true. Okay, we're running out of time. <laughs> so we're running out of time. So I hope you will indulge me as we do a quick rapid fire round where I'm going to ask you all the same question and you only get to say yes or no. Um, and that's it. So we're going we're gonna to go around. Um, should a new Democratic-led House of Representatives in January 2019 try to impeach President Trump? Yes or no, Simone Sanders? So yes or no, not a laugh. Look, I think the... the no, no! You don't, you're really bad at this game. This it's isn't a yes, yes or, no. or no. This isn't a yes or no question. Oh, I think, I, I think the House has to hold the Trump administration accountable. Okay. Wow, you're not even an elected member and you sound like a... Oh, God. Senator, Senator Jeff Merkley. Investigate, yes, and if the information is substantial, yes. Nina. Yeah, it's not that simple. Okay. Yeah, it's not yes or no. Okay. No one wants to play this game with me, Rogue. No, we'll, well, I mean, yeah, we've got to wait for Mueller's report. If they're high crimes in Mueller's report, you impeach. If they're not, right. then you follow the evidence. Okay. I mean, I think Democrats actually believe in evidence and... Uh, process. Fine. Let's stick with let's stick with you, Rose. Should Nancy Pelosi be speaker if Democrats win control of the House? Yes or no? Yes, because we're going to win the speakership on the backs of women candidates and women turnout. And if you're going to deny the first woman speaker of the House the gavel who leads us to victory, I think that's a slap of the face of women across America. Okay, but but she's been woman speaker before. It's not like the first time. Uh, there are other women. Um, yes or no, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker of the House. You know, it's up to, to the members of the Congress. What's your view, Nina? I, your view. We're here to hear I, you, Nina. <laughs> He's not going to let me get away with that. I, you know, listen, I, I don't want to just throw uh, Leader Pelosi under the bus like that. Okay. Um, Jeff Merkley. <laughs> Defer to the House. <laughs> That's the only time the Senate's ever done that. <laughs> <laughs> Should Nancy Pelosi be... I'm just... I know I'm not going to get an answer. Should Nancy Pelosi be Speaker of the House in January? Yes if or no? If she can get to 218, absolutely. <laughs> That's how many votes you need in the United States House of Representatives way, to that, be Speaker I, of the there's House. No point, there's no point asking the rest of the question. It, Should Chuck Schumer be leader of the Senate in January 2019, yes or no? We'll, we'll have a vote, and uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that then. That's right. Yes People at no home questions. listening, I'm trying. You can't see me, I'm trying. Listen, oh here's God. what I want. I want to see Chuck Schumer be majority leader instead of minority leader, because then we can, as a majority, we can stop all the horrific nominations uh, to the, right. the court and all the horrific, uh, not the Scott I'm going to try so one that I think might get an I'll answer. I'll say no. You don't think Chuck Schumer? I think, I think Leader Schumer, I think Minority Leader Schumer has been outmaneuvered by Mitch McConnell, M Mitch McConnell, and he gave way too much on the judges before we even got yes. to Judge Kavanaugh. So... No. I, I agree with Simone. I mean, look, I'd rather have Mer Merkley in, as Senate Majority Leader <laughs> yeah, or, about, or, or Warren. I was about Warren. to give up on the no, quiz, but, and you were like, here, yes, here, yes, here, here, Schumer did it. Well, here's the difference. I mean, what, 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 first, there are two differences. If you don't have Nancy Pelosi, who are you going to have? Do you want Steny Hoyer? I mean, I'm supporting Barbara <laughs> Lee. I, wow. I, I, uh, I, for those I, of you at home, Simone I, Sanders I, just I, fell I, off her chair. I, I mean... Steny Hoyer will I, do that. I, I'm supporting Barbara Lee. She's ready for conference chair. Nancy... Nancy <laughs> 
Nancy Pelosi, look, she's not perfect, but she opposed the war in Iraq. Schumer was for the war in Iraq. Nancy Pelosi at least fought for a public option. Schumer did. There, and there are plenty of progressive senators. Okay. I'm back like in this game now. I'm loving like this game Markley, now. Who, who, uh, I love, who could I love be how I through like, the other House's speaker under the bus, but not his speaker. Um, can Joe Manchin of West Virginia still be called a Democrat? Yes or no? No. Hell no. Roe? No. Jeff? Yes. Simone? Yeah. Ooh, split there. All right, last one. Before we get on to the final topic, we're running out of time. Should Bernie Sanders run for president in yes. 2020? Yes. 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 Yes or no? Yes. 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 Yes, if people... Yes. Wow, it's a sun... Okay. So on that note, on that note, on that note, there are other candidates who are also trying to throw their hats in the ring. There's going to be lots of people running for president in 2020. Um, all of you... <laughs> An audience member is helping me in that direction that I was going to get to. But before I get to Jeff Merkley, Elizabeth Warren. What is your view of Elizabeth Warren, Rokana? Brilliant uh, warrior for economic justice. Uh, very compelling candidate. Do you think she should run as well? To give Absolutely. A proper and I think Jeff Merkley should run. Here's my view. We, no, I, I, I mean this in all sincerity. We need to have 20 people, thoughtful people who bring different skills run, share Absolutely. their vision with the American people, and let the voters decide. And, you know, Jeff Merkley's done tremendous work with outside groups. Different people have different skills. Let them run. Let them present their vision. Yep. And 20, let's see. does it really have to be 20? Well, I, I, I mean, I, and of course, I'll, think, I, I'll pick who I like, but, the, uh, but everyone should have that opportunity. I don't understand why you wouldn't want a robust, open think, debate. While we're on the subject, do you think Michael Avenatti should have that opportunity? No. Oh. I, I think he's, I mean, he has the right to run. He would be a, a disaster uh, for, for the Democratic Party. I, now I'm probably going to get sued tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> and, and he's probably going to win now as well. It'll be like a Trump. Nina. No, I, everybody, I mean, run. I mean, we, we went down this road in 2016, and it was not good in terms of, we you know, court. Them. Yeah, don't do that. Let, let the variety of people who want to run, I agree. I mean, everybody knows who my preference is. I want to see Senator Bernie Sanders do it, and if he's in, I'm in right with him. But everybody should be able to, whoever wants to run, so, run. So on that note, Jeff Merkley, are you going to run for president? <laughs> uh, ask me after November. I'm, I'm exploring it. And, and I'll tell you, the, I've done thing after thing in my life because I get infuriated uh, with in, injustice. And I'm infuriated now. And if, if I feel, if I wrestle with my, my family and, and feel like, like I can add something to that conversation, then it'll be yes. You don't, you don't worry that you and Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders might split the left vote? No, it's all going to sort itself out. It, you know, because not every... It kind of sounds like you made no, up your mind. it sorts itself out. I'm just out. saying. Yeah, it goes, it goes back to the voters and as we go through those primary states. Okay, By the time so, you get through three or so four, you're So let me throw out an awkward question, because you're all Bernie supporters and you're a Bernie supporter, but also a Merkley supporter. Um, <laughs> let me throw out an awkward question here. It's awkward for me, because I come... And I like Bernie Sanders, and I like Elizabeth Warren, and I there's good old you, Joe Biden who wants to run as well. Are you about to talk about age? Joe, I am going to talk about age and, and, and uh, diversity in Ageism other ways. Ageism is not a beautiful thing. It's not, but it's not about ageism. It's about what if you have it? a party where three candidates are going to be in their 70s, isn't there an argument for a younger, maybe a non-white candidate, the a Cory Booker, a Kamala Harris, just to kind of show that the Democrats yeah. are not an old white party? But the voters get to decide that. You know, when I look at President Nelson Mandela who's the first black yeah. South African president, black yeah. South African, coming out of prison after yeah. he had been there for almost 30 years. Yeah. He was well into his 70s, and he was transcendent in that country. Okay. So no, no, if I, I, all I, of us live long enough, we're going to get there. So no, I, we, get, we, I get that. Well, I get what that. I'm saying is that 
we can argue about the policy and about the diversity of this party, which starts not just with the presidency, it's all up and down. I mean, Stacey Abrams is on the ver verge of making history in this country, being the first African-American woman in the history of the United States of America to serve as governor. So it's not just about the presidency, and it's not just one race where the Democrats can show True, but their diversity. I'm just, I'm just wondering, in 2020, if it was Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders versus Donald Trump, what message would that send to a lot of people? Well, uh, I'm just wondering what message that would send. Well, I mean, I think that would send that if, if it was Joe Biden or if it was Senator Sanders or whom, whom, if it was Senator Merkley, that the voters decided that's what they wanted to be their Democratic yeah. nominee, that's what the Democratic nominee is. I think you're asking a different question. Your question really is, do you think there's an appetite in the Democratic Party base for an older white candidate as the presidential nominee? And, and I, I don't know. That's why we well, have I'm to have a primary. I'm going to ask our audience here, if you, if you would like to see Elizabeth Warren be the candidate in 2020, applause, cheer, make some noise. If you would like to see Bernie Sanders be the candidate in 2020, make some noise. It's a, it's a Sanders crowd, I think. And, but wait till Jeff makes up his mind after November. <laughs> That crowd, that, that applause is going to shift. Um, we are almost out of time. I do want to ask you all this question. Um, there is a lot of rage and frustration. I, Nina, you and I talked about it at the beginning of the show. People on the left are legitimately, justifiably angry. Some people are demoralized and angry, uh, especially after the events of recent uh, weeks with Kavanaugh. Uh, but it's Trump getting elected, Gorsuch getting appointed, tax cuts for the rich. Um, now, Kavanaugh, what is your advice to all of you? One last question. What is your advice to people out there who are trying to fight the good fight, but are losing hope and saying, you know what, yeah, we get these victories, we're having some good primary results, but the big picture, the one percenters, as Jeff put it, are still winning these struggles. What's your advice? How do you guys not lose hope? How do you stay confident and optimistic? Who wants to go first? Well, there's never an end to the fight for justice. It really is a generational proposition. And every generation is charged with advancing justice for the next, and they pass the baton to the next and to the next. So we can never be so angry and frustrated that we give in, that we give out, and that we give up. You know, to quote something from our Native American sisters and brothers who said that we must be willing to see seven generations beyond ourselves. That's what this is about. Or to be able to plant trees whose shade we may never enjoy. That is what our duties, that's what our duties are right now is to really be able to plant those trees whose shade we may never enjoy, to stay encouraged, never give up, never give up, and never give out. It's beautiful. Joe, uh, Jeff? Well, a lot of folks are, are caught right now between despair and deploying. And by that I mean despair, you're curdled up on your couch, you're going, oh my God, the world is horrific, I, I give up. We cannot let that happen, and it means reaching out, reaching out for our, through our revolution, for example, through their organization, or reaching out through uh, Indivisible and discovering that you're in a Republican community, but you, uh, there's a lot more Democrats than you knew. I think if you, when you join with others, and then you have a sense, yes, we're not alone, we're in this fight, we have to win this fight, and we have to win it now before basically the 1% lock up government by and for the powerful forevermore. This, this election, so yes, resist, yes, persist, and yes, vote on November 6th and take every friend and family member with you to the polls. Rokana. Well, my perspective comes from my grandfather. He spent four years in jail with Gandhi for India's independence. I serve in Congress every day with a man, John Lewis, who got beaten on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Our struggles pale 
in comparison to what people have sacrificed before. I actually believe Trump is in the last gasp of a movement that's dying, and we're on the cusp of a progressive future, and it's our duty, our responsibility to people who sacrificed far more than we did uh, to persevere and see that through. Simone Saunders. Uh, never forget that anger. Think about every when you go to the polls on November 6th, and when you go to the polls in the next primary, when you go to the polls in the next general election after that, and when you think about who should put their name on the ballot, never forget the anger that you felt when you watched uh, the, the men and many of the men of the Republican-controlled Senate and Congress stand up there and disparage women, stand up there and disparage people of color. Never forget how you feel every time you hear Donald Trump say something stupid because <laughs> these people work for us. They work for us, never forgetting. And when someone does not perform on the job, they lose it. So if you don't like what Lindsey Graham had to say, vote him out. If you don't like what Mitch McConnell had to do, get rid of him. Never forget the anger that you felt, and we have to turn that anger into action and passion. And I will just, the last thing I'll say is to feed off of what Nina said, the work that we are doing right now, much like the work that Dr. King did 50, 60 years ago, colors the lives we live today. So the work that we are doing today will color the lives folks live 50 to 60 years from now. I hope we will be able to say that the work we are doing moved the needle and helped the pendulum swing in the opposite direction. And on that note, we are sadly out of time. That's our show. Nina Turner, Simone Sanders, Senator Jeff Merkley, Congressman Ro Khanna, thanks so much for having this discussion with me on Deconstructed. Thanks so much to our audience here at the National Union Building. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept and is distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Zach Young. Dina Sayed Ahmed is our production assistant. Thanks to my Intercept colleagues for their help on this live recording. Thomas Crowley, Rodrigo Brandao and Kate Myers. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Lital Molard is our executive producer. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Mehdi Hassan. You can follow me on Twitter at Mehdi R. Hassan. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Go to theintercept.com forward slash deconstructed to subscribe from your podcast platform of choice, iPhone, Android, whatever it is. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. And if you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.